Liberty Blues. Uh, we're joined today by uh, Gene Epstein. He's the director of the Soho Forum, a debate series out of New York. Uh, he's also the former editor at Barron's Magazine. Um, I'm Sean Osborne. And, and I'm uh, Steve Mearns. And I'm John Phillips. I'm an attorney from the Midwest and general philosophy of libertarian. So it should be like uh, <clears throat> preaching to the choir today. Yes, and, uh, for the most part. So, so uh, is he, Sean, you're in California? Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. And John, you're? I'm in Lafayette, Indiana. I see, okay. And Steve is as well. I'm in, uh, hi Steve, and I'm in Lower Manhattan, 3rd Street or 3rd Avenue. Yeah, so, right. we're, so we're all over the place. This is great. Libertarians everywhere. We've got the country covered. <laughs> so we wanted to have you all on today to talk about some of the you know kind of because uh, I know you people from the left because you yourself came from a, a, a family your your mother uh, communist and uh, grew up as a social uh, social democrat right well yes uh, yeah I know briefly I was in, you know I was a Stalinist at the age of five uh, you know so up from depravity is my story um, <laughs> we all come yeah so um, yeah. So um, one of the things we wanted to talk to, uh, John had some questions because we, you know, I, uh, we, I'd showed him some of the other interviews you had done and he had some, uh, some questions about like uh, uh, how, how libertarianism would work with healthcare and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, obviously I, I, I've always embraced the, the liber uh, libertarian ideal about government staying out of things things uh, that once government gets involved, it picks winners and it picks losers, it stifles creativity, it uh, reduces incentive to work, um, and it's, it's generally negative. Mm -hmm. But the, the difficulty with applying that philosophy um, to modern politics, in my view, one problem that I have is when it comes to healthcare. What do you do with, what do you do with healthcare in a capitalistic society? I don't think it's proper for or possible for people to clip coupons for brain surgery. Clip, I'm, I'm not even clear what you mean. Why, why would people be clipping coupons for brain surgery? What yeah, I mean, I mean, if, if everybody's just competing in a general capitalistic society for healthcare, then, you know, the way the, the capitalism works is you go for the bottom line, you try to get consumers the general way by paying money and that uh, to get services. Mm -hmm. But when you have, you know, a certain segment of the of the population is going to be children. A certain portion are going to be incarcerated. Those people are not going to be able to have health care under a general capitalistic um, regime. So how does that how does that work? Well, a, I'm not clear how do how do children and convicts have uh, the. Uh, by the way, I, I even bridled the word health care. I would want to use the word medical care because most of health care does not take place within the medical industry. Uh, but uh, so access to health care, which has a lot to do with adequate food, clothing, and shelter, um, uh, how would children and convicts get, get, get adequate food, clothing, and shelter under a capitalist system, according to your argument, with all due respect? What, right. what, how does, how does, that, how does, how does the capitalist system manage to deliver Probably the, one of some of the most important aspects of healthcare to children and even to convicts. Uh, how does that how does that work according to you? Correct. 
I mean, are you playing devil's advocate? <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah. no, I, 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 yeah. I generally want to know. I mean, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, from, from my perspective, it seems to me there's always going to be, you know, some, I mean, you can say uh, if a person chooses not to get health insurance, um, you know, that person's not able to, um, to be insured and then they yeah. come up with some type of disease. You know, the rest of us who have purchased healthcare insurance, we don't want to be the ones who pay for that person mm -hmm. who has that. Yeah. And so I, yeah. I think that's the general okay. libertarian philosophy. But then yeah. that kind of falls apart because the way it works in general practice is somebody, you know, does, doesn't buy into healthcare, for example, uh, or medical care. It doesn't buy into that, doesn't pay any insurance premiums. And then the rest of us are stuck, ended up paying for them anyway. I see. Okay. I, all right. I, I, I do see what you're getting at. Uh, and uh, I, I would say that's a general problem across society. I guess uh, people who really don't want to work say, you know, we, uh, we're all compassionate. We don't want them to die. So we don't want them to necessarily be homeless or starve to death. And so uh, I guess I think that's always a problem in any society. Uh, there are lots of people who simply won't take responsibility for themselves in any way. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the US system uh, ha has had a very long tradition, uh, certainly in the late 1800s into the early 20th century, to take care of people who have difficulty taking care of themselves. Uh, the, uh, the point then is that, uh, that since we know that uh, there will be such people we had in particular at community hospitals where doctors did pro bono work, that was a great tradition in medicine uh, in the, uh, certainly in the late part of the uh, 19th century and into the 20th century. Uh, and so the handful of people, a relative handful of people who cannot act responsibly in any way uh, are generally taken care of especially with great ease in the kind of extraordinary affluence that a free market society provides. And on the positive side, uh, the, the difficulty, by the way, with, uh, also with respect to answering the question about how will the free market system manage medical care, is that there are always mysteries to what entrepreneurship can achieve. Uh, certainly, if the government dominated uh, most other industries, then we'd never see uh, some of the incredible innovations that we've seen. If the government dominated food distribution, for example, we'd probably never have supermarkets. We'd never have efficient ways of distributing food. We'd never have Amazon. We'd never have so many of the innovations that capitalist uh, entrepreneurs want to install. Um, and so uh, the, the real mystery is that uh, since we've had so much government-dominated medical care, we don't really know what kind of innovations could happen that would improve care and improve the quality. Uh, but we do know that whenever you unleash entrepreneurship, uh, then quality improves and price declines. We do know that in the only uh, that in the areas where government dominates uh, schooling and medical care, that's where prices have soared, costs have soared. Uh, and uh, where government is not allowed to dominate, that's where things become increasingly cheaper. Uh, uh, we do know, for example, uh, an, an analogy I like to use is death insurance. Uh, do you know if, if, if the, med if the, if the uh, free market were never allowed to sell insurance against death, uh, 
then we'd probably say that the free market can't handle it. But what the free market actually did was repackage it as life insurance, a misnomer, of course, since it's really death insurance, and then package it as whole life, we get to involved with a savings plan. And tens of millions of people bought this death insurance because it was called whole life insurance. And so I do think that uh, since people like to take care of their cars, that it's easy enough to actually scare people into buying uh, whatever they might need with respect to medical insurance, which is what I prefer to call it, because as I've said, uh, health care mostly takes place outside the medical care system. So, I mean, I'm giving you broad brushstrokes about what would happen, but I do think that the medical care system would be far more effective for absolutely everyone um, if the free market were unleashed. Okay, yeah, understood. Could yeah, you yeah, talk yeah. a little bit? Oh, you go on, John. I, I just want to follow up and say, yeah, yeah. just because briefly, you know, just yeah. libertarians get the idea, um, they get saddled back with the argument, well, if there's a capitalistic um, medical care, then there's going to be a lot of these people who are going to be dying or not have access to medicine, and oh. libertarians are going to just sit back and watch them die. But I, I understand oh. your argument about Well, yeah, no, libertarians. Well, indeed, I, I guess they would say that, that if we never, as I say, never unleash the free market, with respect to the to the uh, to the production and distribution of food, uh, but if it were government dominated, uh, and we, and by the way, of course, we've seen that government dominated uh, distribution and uh, production of food has, in many countries where it's tried, produced famine. Then, of course, uh, the skeptics would say, "Hey, look, if you had these capitalists getting involved, then uh, they they uh, they don't want to sell food to people who can't afford it." Therefore, there'd be even worse mass starvation. I guess that's what they would say. Uh, but of course, the absolute reverse happens. Uh, the, the way to make your fortune is by selling to the masses. That's, that's a practical uh, uh, rule in almost all endeavors. The handful of billionaires who've sold to other people, but by and large, the great fortunes are made selling to the masses. Jeff Bezos taught us that. Henry Ford uh, taught us that. Uh, Steve Jobs taught us that. So they look for those innovative ways to make things cheaper and better. And so we see the government, of course, creating the problem that the socialist skeptics uh, believe would, would apply. And we see capitalists doing exactly the reverse. As I say, they'd say the same thing about food or about any other thing like housing or clothing. Um, and so it's strictly based upon ignorance of history and ignorance of what really motivates capitalists. Now, of course, uh, I do uh, I do stress, however, uh, that there is a great deal of compassion in any affluent capitalist society, especially in America, especially in, in our traditions. Uh, even with uh, aggressive government intervention uh, in supposedly helping poor people, uh, there's still uh, over $200 billion of philanthropy uh, uh, that, uh, that, that rich people and even people with limited means, and especially in the age of crowdfunding, distribute. And there is, as I say, a huge tradition in many professions, in law and medicine in particular, in terms of, of doing pro bono work, of running community hospitals. And so it's, it is possible that certain very expensive procedures would still be beyond the reach of people of limited means, even though probably most of them wouldn't be with innovation and in an increasingly affluent society. But to the extent that that applies, uh, we do have an extraordinary amount of philanthropy and compassion 
for people of limited means. So I think everybody, even the very poorest, would be taken care of far more effectively in a capitalist-run medical care system. Isn't the, the like, say, the plastic surgery industry is a good example of that, because well, it's yeah. not as regulated as other medical stuff. Yeah, and of course, what is it, laser surgery on the eyes, you know, that's another category yeah. that's been used. Uh, quality and price uh, improved. Uh, and so, again, there's nothing special. Uh, that's been the big myth, the idea that there's something special about medical care. Uh, you know, p uh, those people who fix our cars are also uh, uh, involved with issues of life and death. There are a lot of scam artists in terms of who, who are in that field. They might tell you, you know, you need this for your car or that for your car, and who are we to be able to challenge them because we barely know anything about how the car operates. However, by and large, that system works well. Our cars have gotten increasingly safer. And by the way, they got increasingly safer long before the government got involved. And so, uh, so we, we see that in every other area. And uh, again, it's, uh, it's only based upon ignorance of, uh, of economics and ignorance of historical fact that, uh, that socialist skeptics express skepticism about uh, privately run medical care. I mean, I could even, I could even go further and say worse, the medical care system kills a lot of people. Uh, the, the, the government run third party medical care system kills a lot of people because a lot of unnecessary medical procedures are forced on people because they don't have to pay for them. Uh, then the, the real scamming occurs in medica, me, Medicare uh, because old people are told to take certain operations that they don't have to pay for, uh, but that the government pays the medical care system to deliver that does them harm. Uh, and so a lot of death that is produced by the medical care system would be much diminished. All kinds of good things would result. Obviously, it wouldn't be perfect. Nothing in human affairs ever works perfectly. It would just, however, be far better than a government-run system. Great. Do you have anything to ask, Steve? Maybe Steve disappeared. Are you no, got anything else, John? Hmm. I'm good. Well, I do. I have a quick question. Uh, okay. So, with with that, do you think with supply and demand would would take effect, and would the price of medical care potentially go up or down? Oh, I think it would. I think it would plummet. Of course, uh, the the reason it would plummet is that you know if you look at, uh, especially in the case of the U.S., if you look at all of the bureaucracy involved in medical care, if you look at the, the actual disincentive to charge less uh, the, on, on the part of the medical care system, uh, then uh, again, as I've said, why is it that, that the two uh, areas uh, of uh, 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 two main sectors of the economy, schooling and, uh, and medical care, are soaring in price, whereas others fall in price? Why is it, it's no coincidence, that government domination of schooling as well as of medical care is the it's got to be the reason that's the key difference that drives my higher court bureau it's a bureaucratic system bureaucrats want to do less with more capitalists want to do more with less so of course the the price would plummet and quality of course would improve now there are all kinds of other puzzles 
about medical care, the claim that, uh, that of course, we are mostly ignorant about what kind of medical care we really need. If we have an ailment, none of us are really educated. Because, I mean, the response to that is that I don't understand, I don't own a car actually, but when I did, I didn't understand how my car worked. We don't understand a lot of things in this very complex society. So we would get second opinions. If a doctor tells us you need an operation, doctor told me I need an operation, I would get an independent second opinion. There would likely be websites that would offer the service called secondopinion.org, uh, where we can, can consult an independent group of experts to make sure that the expert advice we're receiving is good and valuable. So there are all kinds of safeguards. And by the way, all kinds of unexpected, unimaginable ways in which entrepreneurs uh, can develop cheaper uh, quality, cheaper healthcare at higher quality, ways that none of us could anticipate right now, even including uh, people in the medical profession. That's a really good point regarding a, a second opinion, because one of my questions was, you know, when I go to a doctor in um, a capitalistic a medical care society, and he says, "Oh, you need to take this pill." I don't know if this doctor owns stock in this pill, or or what his benefit is. But yeah, that's a great point with respect yeah. to having access to several different opinions would help eliminate that and, and even be better than what we have now. The term second opinion" in, in medical care is part of the part of the language at this point. It's, so it's, that in particular is hardly a new idea, and yet we're continually getting these crazy statements that we would be uh, preyed upon by the experts and we wouldn't know what decision to make. Uh, it would be an enormous entrepreneurial opportunity, a profit-making capitalist opportunity in providing a, a second opinion business uh, just to evaluate recommendations by, by other established medical professionals uh, uh, in order uh, that, that would have a reputation for independence, because reputation is very important if you're going to succeed in any business. And so, of course, it would be quite common. All right. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, that's that's great. So, you guys got any more healthcare questions? Because I got a couple other questions on. No, well, other, I'm ready to move uh, on from healthcare. I call okay, it medical cool. care, guys. So, medical <laughs> yeah, <Go ahead>. medical care. <laughs> How about, uh, how about like, uh, you know, as a libertarian, uh, we catch hell quite a bit about not getting into identity politics, you know, oh. and, uh, you know, people, people always want to put one group's rights above another. And, you know, I always talk about the individual being the smallest minority. Can you talk a little bit about what you think about identity politics? Well, I, I guess if you're speaking totally in the abstract, then yeah. uh, the fact that I'm a Jew and a New Yorker uh, and an American uh, obviously has a lot to do with my identity and my orientation. But clearly, uh, if I told you that uh, my father was an FDR liberal, like many Jews, the Jews loved uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. My mother was a communist, uh, card-carrying communist, like many Jews, statistically we know that uh, a disproportionate number of Jews were communists, uh, and that uh, I was, uh, I grew up, uh, I'm raised in the Bronx, then in Westchester, in a Jewish community, and live in New York City, uh, then uh, what would you guess about my politics? You'd guess 
that uh, that I vote Democrat. And, uh, so, uh, and uh, that I'm a, probably a progressive, you know. And uh, so uh, clearly uh, that's the problem <laughs> with reducing everything to uh, to how you might define somebody's excuse me, somebody's identity. And so clearly uh, there's something useful, potentially something useful about it. You can make statistical generalizations about Jews, uh, for example, uh, probably about Irish, about uh, African-Americans. <clears throat> but uh, but it, it becomes less and less interesting once you get to know individuals. And, uh, and we all, everybody's a little bit racist, uh, I like that song from Avenue Q, the, uh, the Off Broadway musical. We are all a little bit racist. We all have uh, racial uh, and ethnic stereotypes in our mind because, by, because to some degree, at least, those stereotypes fit uh, when, when we meet people. However, once I get to know, <coughs> excuse me, I'll be okay. Once I get to know an African-American or a Jew or, uh, or an Irish guy, then very quickly that person's individuality becomes apparent, and uh, and and if I'm open-minded about getting to know individuals, <laughs> then I'll really get to know people uh, uh, and overcome any prejudice I might have or any framework I might have about what that person is like. On the other hand, clearly, if you get to know me fairly well, you would say, well, it does sort of figure that this guy is Jewish. You know, he does have certain, I in, in particular, do have certain personality traits uh, that, uh, that clearly can be defined as Jewish, which I readily owned up to. So therefore, there is that aspect of identity in me. Uh, and elaborating further on Jews, uh, they are very prominent Jews uh, in the socialist movement, as I needn't uh, belabor, uh, Karl Marx, Leon Trotsky, uh, Emma Goldman, uh, and uh, indeed, of course, there are many prominent Jews in the libertarian movement, Ludwig von Mises, uh, Murray Rothbard, Israel Kirzner, Walter Block. And so uh, the Jews do tend to be intensely involved in such issues. 35% of all the Nobel Prizes in economics have been given to Jews. And, uh, and they're a, a much smaller percentage of the population, no matter how you measure it. So again, all of those things are true about identity, but they become less interesting once you get to know individuals. Yeah, that's good. You guys got anything to add to that? No, I think that not is at all. Good. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, I think that covered that pretty well. So I guess a, a good topic, seeing, seeing you run a debate series, is what, uh, did you, uh, how would, uh, if, uh, if that uh, debate had broken out on the SoHo Forum, what would you have done uh, between Biden oh. and Trump? Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. What's your question? If, was, if, this, if Biden and Trump were- how, how, would, how would you have handled, how would you have oh. handled uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden? Well, uh, well, this, well, what I would have done, and uh, I guess they would have declined the offer, is I would have said that what, uh, what, what is supposedly called presidential debates is a uh, corruption of the term debate. These things aren't debates, they're sort of verbal slugfests at, uh, at best. And so uh, I would say, if you want to do an actual debate uh, between, uh, that we'll call a presidential debate, then we should do it according 
to the structure of the soul forum. Uh, each of you will get 15 minutes to speak. Uh, you'll go up to a podium. There will be only one podium and one mic uh, up at the podium. Everybody else will be sitting uh, while you're speaking, including your opponent, and his mic will be turned off. So he won't be able to interrupt you. Then you'll have to sit, and your opponent will get up to the podium, your mic will be turned off, and he'll speak for 15 minutes. Then there'll be five minutes of rebuttal from you each up at the podium, uh, but then you'll sit down, and this is, of course, the way I run the soul form, that's the format, then you'll sit down, and there will be Q&A, in which you'll get a chance, each get a chance to ask each other questions. Now, I hope you won't interrupt each other overly, but, but I, although I do find occasionally that there is some people do interrupt each other, but at least in those, it'll only be in those 30 minutes that we'll have a lively exchange. The audience will ask questions, I'll ask questions, you'll ask questions of each other, and in that case, I hope you won't interrupt each other. I'll try to discourage it, but I won't be able to stop it altogether. And then you'll each have seven minutes of summary in which you'll both go up to the, each go up to the podium in turn, again, where uh, the, your opponent's mic is turned off. So that would be an actual debate uh, where you can speak in paragraphs, elaborate on your point of view, and where there can be extended rebuttals. So that's the way I would run presidential debates. And of course, I've offered to the uh, Presidential Debating Committee, my service is gratis uh, to, uh, to do the next debate between Trump and Biden, uh, according to that structure and format. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that would make, I, I love your series. It's, it's a great series. How long have you done the Soho for? Uh, it started in, in September of 2016. Uh, that was our, we had our first debate actually in the Soho. <laughs> right now, we've been running them, of course, uh, we had to stop running them in the physical space uh, as of April of this year, but uh, we ran them at the Subculture Theater, which is technically NoHo, technically north of Houston, but our first one was run in, 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 in actually in, a, in an art gallery south of Houston, so we earned our title Soho Forum uh, that way. Uh, and uh, I, I, I just happened to be able to raise enough funds to run it from this one guy I knew who was interested? Uh, I'm not much of a fundraiser, and uh, I, I we didn't I didn't exactly run it that well the first couple of episodes, but uh, I've always enjoyed it, and uh, we now uh, we now have for quite a long time I've been selling tickets. Uh, people pay to come, partly I think because uh, they do want to see a one-on-one -on -one debate and learn something. Uh, and again, I emphasize the one-on-one -on -one format is really the format that I prefer. There are other debate societies that make it two against two, but I think that that has problems that I could go into. Uh, nobody, uh, the people on each side are not quite motivated to be master of their subject. If it's one against one, you know you're the only one who'll be up there defending your point of view, and it's much more focused. Uh, but I also think that people pay to come partly because it's a theatrical occasion. It's a, it, it, it has a kind of resolution because we do Oxford style voting. You vote, you vote yes, no, or undecided on the resolution before the debate begins. And then you vote yes, no, or undecided after the debate ends. And the person who gets the Tootsie Roll, who wins the debate, is the person who moves the vote in his or her favor. And so there's a kind of a winner, quote unquote, uh, but it's part of the game, part of the evening. Although, of course, I emphasize that, uh, that 
there, there are really no winners. It's just who, who, who won for you, of course, because we're individuals. How do you feel in the audience uh, about uh, whether uh, the argument you heard on stage changed your point of view in any way? I myself have done uh, six debates at the Soul Forum. I've won five of them. I was a little surprised that I lost the sixth. Uh, but uh, again, I do think that winning means something, but uh, it's hardly the only thing. What I really like to see is a decent debate, uh, mostly, hopefully, between progressives and libertarians. I have had difficulty getting progressives to come to the Soul Forum, but uh, I've had some success, or occasionally as well, one libertarian versus another. Our most popular debate recently was an online debate about who libertarians should vote for, and that was our unprecedented three-way debate. I had a libertarian argue for Biden, a libertarian uh, argue for Trump, and a libertarian argue for Joe Jorgensen of the Libertarian Party. Yeah, that was a great debate. And who won that one? Uh, the woman, uh, Angela McArdle. And as a matter of fact, just uh, yesterday, we did a follow-up. That debate got, has gotten over 45,000 YouTube views, and so it was pretty popular uh, for one of our recent debates. And so, uh, uh, and it took place on July 22nd. So uh, just yesterday, I did a follow-up uh, uh, interview uh, with each of the three debaters to give us their updated views, and we're gonna release that this week. Uh, oh, nice. For this for each of them. I, I will say, off the, so to speak, off the record, that, that uh, Ilya Soman, a uh, law professor at the George Mason, who argued for Biden, I sort of liked him uh, in, this, in the sense that his, his libertarian arguments for Biden at least made some sense. I'm not, myself, I'm not voting for Biden, but they made me feel a little less upset about a potential Biden, -Biden victory. <laughs> upset, I'm upset about a Trump victory also, just like you guys were. Uh, yeah. But I, I was upset about a Biden victory, and he at least made a few good talking points that Biden could be even better from a libertarian point, the lesser evil, that is, from a libertarian point of view yeah, yeah. than Trump. Can you briefly tell us what those, I'd be curious to know what those those points were with respect to the, uh, Biden? Well, yeah, well, well, Ilya, of course, made, it just reminded us uh, that uh, it's certainly that, that Trump has not, is not exactly libertarian when it comes to free trade. And uh, that, and uh, I, I actually, uh, the debate I lost opposite Steve Moore, who was an economist who, who's been working for Trump, uh, is where I called Trump a bloviating ignoramus on free trade. And, uh, uh, and uh, Moore was defending Trump. And uh, I, I did pick up a fair number of votes, but, but more, Steve Moore, to my surprise, picked up more. But that's about me. Getting back to Hillary Summit. So he said, he, he pointed out that Biden is really part of the sort of Obama and Hillary Clinton tradition that they're based in, uh, in Bill Clinton. They're basically in favor of free trade far more than, than crazy Trump, uh, who doesn't understand uh, trade at all. So that's one point that Ilya Soman made. Uh, I myself, uh, I should say about immigration, that while, while, while actually libertarians have strong, often have strong disagreement about immigration, most libertarians tend to lean in the direction of saying that immigrants uh, should be allowed in. Brian Kaplan, whom you guys may have heard of, is a libertarian who wrote a very good book about unrestricted immigration. And Ilya Soman then made the point that Biden would be more liberal, more libertarian in that sense about immigration. Uh, 
With respect to the negatives uh, about Biden, uh, he pointed out that uh, Biden, Biden keeps contradicting himself about whether he want, even wants a Green New Deal, whether he'll even support it. Uh, uh, that, uh, that, that with respect to the other aspects of Biden having to do with increased spending, uh, he'll have to get that through Congress. And there's some question as to whether he'll be able to, even if he gets a small majority in the House and Senate, will all of them vote for spending plans that he may or may not uh, back. And uh, so uh, there's that point as well. And so he, you know, is basically saying, look, you know, don't, don't, don't have that many sleepless nights uh, in the event of a Biden win. It may, it may not be so terrible, and there could be a few good things coming out of it. Hmm. Interesting. Excellent. How about um, switch topics? How much time we got left, Steve? We have five minutes. Oh, we have five minutes. Four minutes and 13 seconds. <laughs> Can you, uh, to, to, to wrap up, could, could you give us a little bit of uh, like any, uh, any good libertarian books to read? I, I'm reading like Rothbard's uh, The Great Depression right now. Oh, yeah? Uh, well, what well, would you suggest? Well, uh, let's see. Let me first uh, suggest uh, uh, if you like Rothbard, uh, who, who is the... Uh, the economist who turned basically was key in turning me into a libertarian. Uh, I, I I recommend uh, his uh, his many essays because he's incredibly prolific. There is a huge essay collection uh, uh, in which Rothbard writes about a whole range of topics. It's called Economic Controversies, uh, and it's got about fifty-five essays and articles by Rothbard. And as you know, he's a very good writer, very engaging. Uh, and uh, it includes an introduction uh, by, uh, and the first sentence of that introduction reads, it was nearly 40 years ago that Murray Rothbard changed my life. And that introduction was written by me. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it was Jeff Tucker, at the, who was then at the Mises Institute, who gave me the opportunity to do an introduction to this massive collection of essays that he was putting together uh, by Rothbard. Uh, and again, it's published by the Mises Institute Economic controversies. And, uh, I, and I think that, that that may be the best. I commend you on reading The Great Depression. Certainly, it's a thoughtful work. I think that, the, the, in, a, in a way, perhaps one of the best ways of, of sort of getting into libertarianism is not necessarily by reading a, a particular book-length essay, but reading uh, a, a shorter articles, which uh, which pique your curiosity and, and, uh, and introduce you to various topics. Um, I, uh, since we're on the subject of Rothbard, uh, I could recommend others, but on the subject of Rothbard, uh, uh, I would also say that his book, For a New Liberty, uh, which uh, was his sort of like popular manifesto about libertarianism, is, it's dated. It obviously, it, it came out, I think, in late, late 1970s, at least the second version he wrote, but it still is a very lively introduction to libertarianism generally and anarcho-capitalism in particular, uh, I guess that's two, and I perhaps my five minutes are up. And I, uh, yeah, that should be good. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Gene, sure. for for taking your time and coming and speaking with us. I really appreciate it, and uh, yes, I look forward. I'm really looking forward to the Bill Crystal uh, Scott Horton debate. All right. Well, we've got to schedule that. With Bill Crystal versus Scott Horton. We 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 want to schedule that in a physical space. We're hoping to do that soon. Uh, just one question: When 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 is this going to be released? Uh, what, what are you going to do? Uh, the next day or two. Next day or two. All right. So we'll send me the link. I'll I'll send it out to my Twitter following. Okay. Cool. All right. Thanks a lot, Gene. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So my pleasure. Bye bye.